You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Bethany McLean, who is author, journalist, and, well, I should say author of a bunch of books, three of which I've read, which I really enjoyed. The most recent one is called The Big Fail, What the Pandemic Revealed, about who America protects and who it leaves behind. Co-authored with Joe Nocera, who you also co-authored this book with, All the Devils Are Here, The Hidden History of the Financial Crisis. And then before that, and I don't have the copy with me, Smartest guys in the room, right? Which was about Enron. And I noticed a theme here. You talk about how in hospitals, after there is a death or a medical mistake, they do sort of an M&M review or a a post-mortem. And you advocate that we should do things like that whenever there is some kind of disaster, fiasco, scandal, or crisis. And and all three of your books, I think, are versions of that, where you, you go back retrospectively and dissect what happened, what went wrong, what kind of mistakes were made. And with respect to the coronavirus crisis, I mean, it's a field day. I mean, where do you even begin? I mean, I guess at some point you had to sort of say, I got to stop writing this because if I keep digging, I could probably add another 50 chapters or so. So I want to dig into, you know, some of those things. But it seems like while we might learn something about the mistakes that led to Enron, and we might learn something about the mistakes that led to the financial crisis, It seems like to the extent that we do remedy those problems, and I'm not saying we do adequately, but to the extent that we do remedy them, it doesn't seem like we make those lessons general enough so that we could prevent these things from happening in other domains. And and you describe the behavior of public health officials as being sort of panic, panic, neglect, neglect, panic, neglect. And, And it seems like that pattern of behavior You can find that across a number of domains. So so I guess one big question is, why is it in general that we do such a poor job of anticipating crises and making investments that would kind of minimize the, the risk of these crises? I think there are a few reasons. I think one is that we always expect the crisis that's coming next to look like the one that came before. So after Enron, we passed Sarbanes-Oxley, putting in place a lot of laws meant to prevent what had happened at Enron. Down the pike was coming the financial crisis. (laughs) After the financial crisis, we put in place a lot of laws meant to increase capital at the banks and prevent another financial crisis. And down the pike was coming an entirely different type of issue. And so we want and expect our future problems to look like our past problems. I think another, though, is that in an increasingly short-term world, we just aren't willing to learn lessons. I remember in the wake of Enron, there was a lot of discussion about how the whole Enron scandal would have been prevented if we just had a more long-term view. Investors, CEOs, uh, management teams, and it sounded so obvious. And I thought I was young then, and I thought, oh, that makes a ton of sense. There's a pretty easy fix here. And lo and behold, 20 plus years later, the world has just become more and more short-term. So I think we're not willing to change things. Everything feels like it's hurtling faster and faster toward a more dangerous place instead. And then I think in the wake of the pandemic, we're just not willing to look at it. We're just not willing to look at it. I think too many people advocated for policies of which they're not proud. And for one prominent example, we all want to wring our hands about how far behind children have fallen in school. And nobody wants to look in the mirror and say, yeah, we were pushing to keep kids out of school. We were pushing for those policies. And so I think there's also there's just a little bit of a sleight of hand that happens where those who are responsible want to make it all go away. Yeah. And there are striking similarities, I think, between especially the financial crisis and the the pandemic that you highlight in the book, which does have to do with the pursuit of current success metrics. So you, you talk in particular about the supply chains and how the, the healthcare system was doing what seemed to make a lot of sense in the moment, which was to maximize, say, capacity utilization of hospital beds, to reduce the costs associated with procuring not only 
things like PP&E, but also procuring labor and, and procuring medicines and so forth. And this seems to be, I think this is something that has to be put upon the investors, right? Because I mean, we all talk about how investors should be thinking about long-term returns, but it seemed like the investors are prioritizing current metrics, right? And they're evaluating their managers and these institutions on the basis of how much money did you make this quarter or this year? Yeah, but in fairness, blaming the investors isn't the end of the chain, if there even is an end of the chain, because investors themselves are getting measured by their quarterly performance. And so there are very few people who are giving their money to an investment firm who are like, yeah, this was a down year, but don't worry, we love you guys and we're girls and we're sticking with you for another year. Everybody's short term. So I think it's a societal malaise, maybe a late stage capitalism malaise, but I don't think it's fair just to blame investors. But I do think this continued push for more profits now is dangerous in all sorts of ways. And we saw it for sure in the case of Enron. The biggest issue possibly being that Enron actually did have a lot of promise. There were people there who really were visionaries and Enron could have contributed a lot to the world. And if it weren't for the quarterly push to show profits now, perhaps the company could have survived and actually been something. And I think in the pandemic, you saw, well, and in the financial crisis, you saw the push for profits materialize in this race for the bottom where everyone, even those who were originally skeptical of subprime mortgages, piled into the business because, hey, it was making money and you could not afford to be left behind. And that really worried me at the time because capitalism at its best, in theory, is supposed to create a race to the top. And if it's creating a race to the bottom instead, wait, what, what's happening? And then we saw it in the pandemic with which, as you mentioned, supply chains, where the idea was make these things more and more efficient. And no one seemed to say to themselves, well, what's the cost of efficiency? Is a certain degree of resilience the cost of efficiency? Are we giving something up by making things totter and totter and totter until they break? And the same, honestly, is true of people. Part of the reason that you're seeing a desperate situation in the staffs of nursing homes and hospitals and with teachers is because people had been pushed to the brink, too, in the name of profits before the pandemic even hit. And then this horrible thing happens and they're supposed to deal with it and they snap. There's no resilience there. And so I do think we have to ask ourselves as a society, what's the cost of resilience? And isn't it a cost we want to pay? Is part of the problem perhaps moral hazard? I mean, if, if you as, as an individual, say, healthcare institution, decide to be prudent and sign long-term contracts and, say, pay for d domestic production of PP&E, well, then the, the folks who aren't so foresightful, I mean, aren't they ultimately going to get bailed out in some way by, by the government? I mean, isn't this idea of the Fed put something which has spread to pretty much every sector at this point? Yeah, for sure. I think it's a mixture of moral hazard and this race to the bottom that we seem to be in uh, across industries. You'd want to believe that the company that treated its workers the best and paid them well, paid them a living wage and created the best product at the best price was going to be the company that won. And too often, at least in the short term, that does not seem to be the case in our modern economy. But yes, the Fed put is, I think, maybe a separate but definitely a related issue that over the last couple of decades of super low interest rates, every time there's a market hiccup, everyone knows the Fed will come to the rescue. And that's enabled really weak companies, as in the aftermath of the pandemic, to go out and raise immense amounts of money, despite the fact that they were on the brink of failure. And we do, you know, it's funny for a supposedly capitalist economy because it's only capitalist in some ways. Everybody made a big deal out of the bank bailouts in 2008, of course, but we bailed out the hospitals in the pandemic, and now we're bailing out the semiconductor industry with the CHIPS Act. So wait, where do we draw the line? Who gets a bailout and, and who doesn't? Well, so one would think that, I mean, if the government is going to be the kind of lender of last resort, the kind of the backstop for poor risk management on the part of private sector, you would think then that they would be more prudential to protect themselves from large-scale payouts. But it seems like the, the government also is very short-sighted in this regard. I think the government is really short-sighted, and I think part of it goes back to the issue we first discussed, which is that the government only knows how to look at the last crisis, not how to prevent the next one. 
I think there is still, it's better marginally than it was in the Enron days, but I remember being so struck in the days of Enron by the cluelessness of Congress people about how the financial system worked. And I think that's still a problem. I think people want to wave their hands for the most part and say, oh, we came out of this somewhat unscathed. Let's not look too quickly, lest it bite us or, <laughs> or blow, blow, blow up in smoke. And so I think that's a little bit of a problem, too. And I think our government has become fairly incompetent and fairly unwilling to lead. And that's partly because we are so divided as a society that it's difficult to lead, but partly because people would rather score ideological points than actually exercise leadership. Well, we can understand I think in part why Congress people are so short-sighted, right, because of the election cycle. But isn't that kind of why we have the administrative state? I mean, we set up these agencies like the CDC, right? And they're supposed to be institutionally designed to have a longer-term outlook, right? And they're supposed to be relatively free of politics and the election cycle. I mean, has that ever been true? Or, or I mean, has there been some kind of shift to make the kind of regulatory bodies less concerned with the long term? Or is it that they simply can't do anything without the approval of the elected officials? I don't know. It does seem like a shift, but I'm a little wary of the nostalgia of the good old days, right? Which often weren't nearly as good as we all want to believe. So I'm tempted to say, yes, it's worse now. I don't actually know that in any kind of empirical way. I do think the idea that the administrative state is free of politics is just clearly not true. I mean, it wasn't when Trump was president, but it wasn't even before that. Many parts of our administrative state are actually tightly bound to the politics. And so they're bound to the politics and they're bound to the revolving door. And they're bound to this increased talent drain in the sense that in a world of more and more income inequality, very few people want to take the cost of going to be a regulator or work in public service because they're giving up too much by doing that. And they're no longer the valued, celebrated person in their community that they once were. So I think all those things make our administrative state less functional than perhaps it once was. But you'd have to do empirical measures of what you mean by functionality to make sure that I'm not giving way to the nostalgia I so despise. (laughs) Now, look, the United States wasn't the only country, I think, that responded poorly to the coronavirus crisis. But I think you can make a case that it was among the worst in terms of its not only its outcomes, but but also the expenditures that we laid out to what looks like negligible effect. To what extent is that due to these pre-existing problems that you highlight in in the book? And and to what extent are they due to uh, something special about the Trump administration. I mean, you talk a bit about how the Trump administration was riven with divides and and fractures and rivalries. I mean, it didn't seem like the kind of place where it was easy to generate consensus or to move the ball forward on certain projects. Yeah. I think the divides in the Trump administration and the lack of functionality made America feel that we didn't have leadership. And I think that made the pandemic feel a lot worse for us. I'm not sure it had any measurable effect on the amount of dollars that were spent. And I'd put the dollars into a couple of different categories, or I think about them in a couple of different ways. One is, as you mentioned, um, the healthcare system. The fact that our outcomes were worse than basically every other in developed nation is problematic in and of itself, but it's really problematic given that we spend double the amount on healthcare as a percentage of GDP than any other industrialized nation. You'd expect when a health crisis came, we spend double the amount. We spent more than anybody else treating COVID patients that we should have had a much better outcome. And instead, we had a worse outcome. So I do think you have to place those numbers in the context of our spend on healthcare and then point a finger back at the healthcare system. And yeah, to some extent, that's because people had, Americans had a lot of pre-existing conditions and COVID preyed on people with pre-existing conditions. And you can get into a philosophical argument about whose fault those pre-existing conditions are. Are they people? Are they a lack of personal responsibility on the part of our populace? Or is it because people lack access to health care and live in deserts where they can't get healthy food and can't take care of themselves? And it's a complicated mixture in every place. I'd 
place more of the blame on a healthcare system that doesn't keep people healthy. It's a great anecdote in the book from a, a head of a rural hospital who talks about how if your grandmother gets diabetes, our healthcare system is really good about taking her into the hospital and chopping off her legs, but preventing her from getting diabetes in the first place, our healthcare system. And then there's the other wave of the, the other couple of waves of money that were spent in the form of government spending bills, one of which was passed under the Trump administration and one of which was passed under the Biden administration. And I think those arguably did some good in the sense that in the wake of the financial crisis, we didn't do anything to help ordinary people. And at least this time around, we did try to do something to help small business and to help people. I think that's created the illusion of some structural change in our economy rather than anything real, but it was certainly better than doing nothing. And I don't minimize that. And I'm a little more forgiving of some of the fraud that took place with those programs than other people are because there was a rush to get money out the door. That said, overall, the way it worked, big well-off companies and well-off people did a lot better than those at the bottom end of the spectrum, both corporations, companies, and people, in the sense that the Fed's bailout meant rising asset prices, and rising asset prices tend to benefit the already wealthy who own homes and own assets. And the ability to borrow at super low interest rates benefits companies that are public, big companies that can access the capital markets, whereas small businesses really struggled. And even with the programs put in place, the PPP put in place by the government, small businesses really struggled. And they took the brunt of the supply chain problems that came later on. And no group struggled more than restaurants, particularly independent restaurants. So we still... Even with what we did, it was still biased, perhaps an unintentional one, but toward protecting the big and the well-off rather than the small and the needy. So I think, I mean, you spend a lot of time talking about the healthcare system, and it is a bit puzzling that we spend so much money on healthcare, and yet we have such terrible outcomes. I mean, one would think that there would be money to be made in improving health outcomes, but, but that doesn't seem to be the case. And you talk about how most of the money in the healthcare system is made from things like knee and hip replacements, right? You know, cancer treatment. And there's very little money to be made in just keeping people healthy. So, I mean, is that unique to the United States? I mean, why is it that, you know, there isn't money to be made in keeping people healthy? It's pretty unique to the United States. And it's really just the system that developed with private employer-based insurance and then incredible lobbying originally from doctors and then from healthcare providers. And we have really, there's this great quote in the book from a guy who's a professor, I think at the University of Pennsylvania, that we have really societally constructed who makes money in healthcare and who doesn't. It's a societal construction. It's not a right or a wrong or a function of people buying a product because they need the product. It's really societally constructed. And it resulted in this great irony that I remember thinking at the time, wait, 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 you have hospitals that are full, that are overwhelmed, splitting apart at the seams, there's so many patients and they're going broke. Wait, what's that? And it's because, as we all know, hospitals were shut down from performing elective procedures. And that's where the money was, not in keeping people healthy or treating people who had COVID. And so I think that's it's part of the reason. I, I just don't know that it's fixable. I sometimes think our healthcare system just needs to be ripped out by the root and totally replaced because everything we do that kind of jiggers around the edges just ends up making matters worse and creating more loopholes that financial players come in and take advantage of. And none of it seems to do anything for either lowering cost of healthcare or actually keeping people healthy. Now, much of the book is about lockdowns and non-pharmaceutical interventions. And these have a kind of curious origin because they've never really been done before to the extent that they were done. We, I mean, we've had quarantines, of course, but this was a relatively novel strategy. And this seems weird, right? Because people had been talking about pandemics and people had been planning for pandemics and there were lots of plans in place, but there weren't any plans that included anything that looked like a, a lockdown. So how is this strategy arrived at, right? Where, where did this come from? It came from China. I mean, we had a history in this country. We chronicle a guy named D.A. Henderson who was instrumental in stopping polio. And he believed that lockdowns would fail over the long run because you need something that doesn't just work on paper. You need something that people will actually do. And even the most, the much heralded lockdowns that blunted the 1918 flu, influenza, 
were short in nature. They weren't years. And you know, I, I've had people argue and say, well, we didn't actually do lockdowns in this country. And okay, that's fair. We didn't do anything nearly as draconian as China. But nonetheless, you had kids out of school for two years. You have vacant downtowns because people who could work from home worked from home. You have restaurants and small businesses that failed in, in, in inordinate numbers because restaurants had to shut. We Whatever we did, whether we call it a lockdown or, or, or not, we shuttered swaths of society to arguable effect. And I've heard the argument from people that, well, the deaths would have been a lot worse if we hadn't locked down, so therefore lockdowns worked. But that's a circular argument, right? In other words, you're saying that then the lockdowns worked and they prevented deaths, but because deaths were less than were originally predicted. But it's a circular argument. And I think you'd have to, particularly when you look at the sheer number of people who died in nursing homes in the early stages of the pandemic, in New York and New Jersey, 40, 50% of deaths were in nursing homes. You have to ask, did lockdowns do anything to prevent deaths in nursing homes? And I don't, it doesn't look like they did. And so if you can't say that lockdowns did something to prevent deaths in the place where the majority of people died, then what did they do? And I think Joe, my co-author and I both also believe that lockdowns themselves were an issue of privilege. It was people with white collar jobs who could hole up at home and do their jobs through Zoom and keep their incomes and school their kids via Zoom. And if the Zoom class hadn't existed, if we had all lost our jobs because we couldn't go to them, there would have been protests much, much sooner. And what we did was we allowed the privilege to stay at home and we sent the people who could least afford it, so-called essential workers, out to their jobs to do the jobs that catered to the rest of us. And so, you know, there may be some form of draconian lockdown that works to stop a respiratory illness, but then there may be some way to do that fairly, but that's not what we did. I remember Andrew Cuomo saying in the early stages of, in New York that some 80% of infections were coming from people who had been sent home from household members. And so we sent injured people who lived in multi-generational housing home to be on top of each other. And so I think it's really tricky to look at what we did and argue that it worked well or that it was fair in any way, shape or form. Well, I remember when the first uh, lockdown was announced in, in San Francisco uh, and it was meant to be temporary. You know, the very first thing that occurred to me is, OK, fine. Now what's the end game here? Right. So what will be the conditions for lifting? What pieces of information would we need to know in order to know whether we should continue and what actually is the goal? So how do we know whether we're actually advancing the goal? And I think for most Americans, there was confusion about well, what exactly is the goal and how do we measure success? Do you think that was primarily a problem of communication among public health officials, or is it that they themselves didn't really know what they were trying to do? Well, but if, if they themselves didn't know what they were trying to do, then it's a problem. It's, it's a problem of substance, but it's also a problem of communication, because if you don't know what you're trying to do, you can't, can't communicate it. But yes, that's the other part of it. I think the rationale for lockdowns was clear at first, and I don't, Joe and I don't quibble with that. When it looked like the hospital system was going to be overrun, okay, fine, let's slow the spread in order to let the hospital system get itself together. That made sense. But once it became clear that especially in most areas, the hospital system wasn't being overrun, then the purpose of lockdown shifted and it became preventing any kind of spread of the virus. It became in some places zero COVID. And it was that. I mean, to be clear, if, you, if you're trying to flatten the curve, by definition, you're not reducing the number of infections, you're delaying the infections. And most intelligent educated people that I spoke to did, did not understand that, that flattening the curve meant simply delaying infections as opposed to eliminating them. My sister is a doctor and she was always like, highly contagious respiratory disease, sort of virology 101, what happens when you lift the lockdown? Guess what? It comes back. So I remember reading these op-eds that would say, well, if we just lock down really hard for six weeks, we can get rid of this virus. It was like, Oh, what are you talking about? That's not going to happen. So I think that's another part of the problem is that why we did it was the rationale shifted over time and it was never clear to people. And that, especially for the people who were losing everything, who were losing their restaurants, who were losing their business, whose kids weren't able to go to school, that became enraging because it was never clear. Why are we still doing this? What's the goal? And people have said to me, okay, the goal was to get to a vaccine, but we didn't know that we were going to have a vaccine as quickly as we did. So wait, were we going to be locked down for a year, for two years? Can you imagine if somebody had said, to you in the spring of 2020, we're going to be locked down until there's a vaccine. 
<laughs> and can you imagine, by the way, if those of us who were able to order our food and our packages and everything else on Amazon, if you had said, and by the way, you got to go grow your own food because all those people who are providing your food and getting it to you, they're not, they're locking down too. They're not doing that. And so somebody on Twitter said to me and Joe, well, you guys, you want to kill everybody. What would happen if we had a highly infectious respiratory disease that killed 50% of the population? And we were like, well, obviously that would be a different virus and would have to figure out a different strategy. But by the way, if you're going to lock down for two years in the face of that, what are you going to do? There are other problems that raise us, right? <laughs> well, even after the arrival of the vaccine, I mean, we here in California, there was no no change in policy after the vaccines had been available for months. So, I mean, it seems like one of the biggest casualties of this pandemic was the kind of faith in science. I think most people in America had a pretty good faith in science. I mean, look, the uptake of the measles vaccine was close to, what, 99% plus. Yes, there were people who were opposed to it, but I think most people had a lot of confidence in things like the CDC. I mean, that got completely shattered as a result of this pandemic. Was that also just a communication failure or were there some major problems with the infiltration of politics into things like public health? So it was all of the above. For sure, the Trump administration's interference with the CDC didn't help the perception that this was an agency to be trusted. But the CDC didn't exactly cover itself in glory. You know, they insisted on developing this test and then failed to develop a workable test. And that set America back months in our ability to test and know how widespread the virus was. And that was a self-inflicted wound on the part of the CDC. But I think it goes beyond that. I think there was a fundamental misconception stoked by people who said, follow the science as to what science actually is. And as well as I do, science is a method of asking questions. It's formulating a theory and then gathering evidence and seeing if the evidence supports the theory or disproves the theory. And then if it disproves the theory, you adjust the theory. But science isn't truth with a capital T. It's a method of ascertaining truth, of arriving at truth. And we wanted to believe that there was truth with a capital T. And I think that was one portion of the damage done. I think another portion of the damage done, and it's hard to know if this is, malfeasance is, is, is the wrong word, but public health officials were really eager to oversell the vaccine. And the vaccine, I think, barring more information, that the original dose of the vaccine was quite a miracle in terms of preventing severe disease or hospitalization. And if public health had just stuck with that and said, that's what it does, we're not sure if it stops you from getting COVID. We're not sure if it stops transmission, but here's what we know it does. So take this vaccine and you probably won't end up in the hospital. And it's a miracle worker. Then when the outbreak in Provincetown happened and people who were vaccinated got COVID and it became this big, horrible thing of breakthrough infections that people who were vaccinated had gotten COVID, it wouldn't have been a big deal. The government would have said, yeah, people got COVID who were vaccinated, but none of them went to the hospital. Look at how great this vaccine is. Isn't it fantastic? But I think in an effort to push everybody to get vaccinated, and that's the most benign interpretation of this, in an effort to push everybody to get vaccinated, public health officials over oversold it. And they said the vaccine did things that we didn't know it did, like prevent transmission, hence vaccine mandates. If the vaccine prevents transmission, then maybe there's a reason for a vaccine mandate. But if it doesn't, really no reason for a vaccine mandate. And I think that's part of what happened because then people saw that, oh, it didn't prevent transmission and you could still get COVID when you were vaccinated. And then if you've been lied to or oversold, let's say oversold instead of lied to, then you say, I don't trust this. I don't trust this vaccine. I don't trust these people. They told me something that wasn't true. And it plays into all the pre-existing doubts in this country about vaccination and all the polarization around which agencies to trust and who to believe. And I, I think, I mean, maybe I'm naive in this. I just believe there's a place for I don't know and we're not sure. And this is what we believe and this is what we hope, but we're not sure. And people tell it me- It seems like some problematic behavior in certain aspects of the scientific community happened a lot earlier. I mean, you talk about the marginalization of the so-called fringe epidemiologists, and, and this was occurring much, much earlier than the, the conversation around vaccines that you mentioned. I mean, in terms of the, the lockdown policies, I mean, this to me is really frightening. And I think it extended beyond the scientific circles. I mean, it extended into pretty much all of the public square, I mean, I know certainly at a place like Berkeley, I mean, it, it was 
even if you're not a scientist, I mean, it was considered heresy. It was considered some kind of unacceptable dissent to uh, raise questions about the government policies at the time. Yeah, no, it, and it happened really, really, really quickly. And what's funny is that it happened even as Trump was initially, I mean, I guess he was always pretty virulently anti-masks, but he did do that first country national pause to the extent that he could do it. But he started pretty quickly trying to reopen and saying we needed to reopen for the sake of the economy and we needed to get kids into school. And it became a marker of where you stood politically. And if you were a good anti-Trump person, then you didn't think kids should be back in school. And I remember I was pretty outspoken early on because I thought lockdowns were a little crazy because I was looking at, not initially to blunt the spread in hospitals, but when I started looking at the death rates in nursing homes, I was like, why are we not protecting the people in nursing? What is going on here when that's where most of the deaths are? Why aren't we putting our resources toward protecting the people in nursing homes? And I thought the data was pretty clear from the beginning out of Italy and China that children weren't really at risk for this. And so I thought it was with due, very much respect for teachers' fear, I thought it was crazy that we weren't getting kids back into school. And the United States was pretty much alone and not getting kids back into school to what I think will be our detriment for decades to come. But the reason we didn't do that is because one of the reasons is because Trump was for it. And so, again, it just became a marker of whether you were a good person. If you were a good person, you wore a mask, you believed in lockdowns, you didn't think kids should be in school. And I had people accuse me of being a friends called me up and say, I didn't know you voted for Trump. And I was like, ah, I mean, when did what one believes about how to counter a pandemic have anything to do with your political affiliation? We don't think that the type of cancer treatment you choose has anything to do with your political affiliation. Where did this come from? And I still think it's a little bit mysterious. It's just one of those groundswells that took over the world and still exists today. Yeah, I mean, but it seems like it's something that is infiltrating all aspects of, of our world. I mean, to, scientists really don't have any, they're not in any kind of unique position to talk about what we should or shouldn't do. What they're in a position to talk about is what happens if you do X? What happens if you do Y? And that seems to be a severable from you know what you should do. I mean, if you're going to decide on whether you want to do lockdowns, obviously you have to take into consideration the public health impact, and then you have to take into consideration things that are completely unrelated to health, right? Like civil liberties and so forth. But it doesn't seem like as a scientist, you, you need to have an opinion about that, right? You can just have an opinion about, hey, if we do this, this is what's going to happen. But having a conversation where you could just discuss cause and effect, it seemed like almost impossible because everyone knew that whatever you were going to say about cause and effect was going to somehow filter into a policy discussion. Do you think that's a problem that people can't have purely scientific conversations without politics creeping in? It's funny. I hadn't thought about that side of it. I thought about the flip side of that a lot, which is that I've never quite understood the anger in some quarters at Dr. Anthony Fauci, because in my view, he was doing what an epidemiologist, what a scientist should, which is I, I mean, he did have a deep intolerance for conflicting views, which is problematic, but he was advocating for the policies that he believed would protect people. It was up to the politicians, up to the elected leaders to say, yes, we hear you, but there are other factors at stake here, like the importance of children being at school, like the importance of our economy, because the economy isn't just money, it's society, it's people's ability to feed their families, it's people's hope for a future. And it was the job of our elected officials to say, this is where the views of a scientist fit, and this is what we're going to do as a country. And the fact that people wanted to outsource those decisions to Dr. Fauci feels to me like a very lame lack of leadership. But I hadn't thought about the flip side, and you raise a really interesting point, that it also means that scientific discussions can't just be scientific. Now, you do talk about one of the success stories, I think, which is the vaccine development. And it's a fascinating story because it happened, I guess, is it because of Trump or in spite of Trump, right? I mean, that's the debate. You tell the story about the Secretary of Health and Human Services who managed to spearhead this initiative in the presence of, I guess, benign neglect. Would that be a, an appropriate description? I think it's a little bit of it's a little bit of both. I think it really is to the credit the Trump question. It really is to the credit of the people who ran it. Alex Azar had been marginalized within the administration. Mansef Slawi, who came in as a scientific lead 
for Operation Warp Speed was not a Trump voter. He was a you know staunch Democrat. And he took the job not to support the Trump administration, but to do what was right for his country. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. He took the job at, at the leadership role at immense financial cost to himself. He gave up all the stock he had in Moderna in order to do it, which would have been worth the fortune. And he knew that. He was a believer in the mRNA vaccines. And so I think that story tells a really good one of people's willingness to transcend politics, which we saw far too infrequently during the pandemic. It also tells to me a really good story of government and industry working together, each realizing what the other lacked. Because if you were just a diehard, basic free market capitalist, you'd say, well, the free market's going to make vaccines. We need vaccines. Of course, companies are going to make them without understanding that in our increasingly short-term world, that the vaccine business had become regarded as a bad one because companies had rushed to make vaccines too many times only to see governments turn around and say, oh, we don't actually need a vaccine for that. And because governments are the buyers, vaccines aren't regarded as being all that profitable. So there wasn't going to be a rush to make vaccines. And even more than that, their companies weren't going to be able to mobilize at scale on a really fast basis because there was no manufacturing capacity left in the U.S. So you needed warp speed both to provide the market by having the government be a guaranteed buyer so that companies would be willing to do this. And you needed the government to get involved to create the manufacturing capacity so that we could not just have the vaccines, but actually manufacture the doses. And I think that's it's a really great story to me of government and industry coming together and each providing what the other lacked. The Trump question, you know, it's an interesting one. It definitely succeeded despite, it definitely didn't succeed because of Trump, because the people who came up with the idea and pushed it forward weren't Trumpians, and it wasn't driven by him. I did hear an argument from someone that any other president would have wanted to mess with it because it was this signature thing, Operation Warp Speed, and that Trump's benign neglect did actually allow it to succeed. On the other hand, some of Trump's pronouncements during the course of the vaccine development that we'll have a vaccine by the election, they weren't helpful. And they created problems for the manufacturers and problems for people's trust in the doses. So I don't know. I guess I'd give Trump mixed marks on it. (laughs) I'm not quite sure. It's as simple as saying the vaccine succeeded despite him, but I, I don't think they succeeded because of him either. Well, it does seem that the expenditure that the government made in the vaccine initiative may have had positive ROI. I mean, if we went back and we looked at the $5 trillion that the government spent, I mean, obviously some of it had positive ROI. Some of it did not. Should we have thought more about spending on things that would have actually led to improvements? I mean, I I think a lot of people made the analogy with a war, Okay, and so we had in World War II, we also racked up a massive amount of debt and we spent a massive amount of money. But it seems like all of the expenditure was targeting victory in the war, right? And uh, a lot of the expenditure that we made during this pandemic was had nothing to do with really improving public health or alleviating the, the pandemic. And it, it didn't leave behind an infrastructure that would enable us to deal with future pandemics. Whereas I think uh, after World War II, I mean, we were left with improved productivity across the board. We were left with big industrial base and, and a relatively strong military infrastructure. What do we have to show for all of the expenditure that we made? We don't have anything to show for. We still have a broken, heavily indebted, broken hospital system and healthcare system that is desperately in need of fixing before it destroys our country. And even though people have made a lot of this survey that came out by the Federal Reserve showing that the median worth, net worth of American households grew 37%, isn't that great? But all of that money is going away as the pandemic era spending comes to an end. We didn't put in place any structural changes that allow, that reduce income inequality or that allow people at the bottom of the socioeconomic strata to do better. We didn't make any fundamental changes. And we created a lot of debt. <laughs> the Federal Reserve policies and the spending by the Trump and the Biden administrations have left corporate America really heavily indebted and America really heavily indebted. And whether or not we get away with that is a question mark for the future. And I don't know. I'm always on the side of debt matters and it's going to matter someday. But the truth is, over the last 25 years, it hasn't mattered because every time it started to matter, the Fed steps in and cuts interest rates to near zero again. And maybe we've got one more round. Maybe we've got a bunch more rounds of that. But I don't think you can argue that all of that money 
was spent in a productive way and that it's help that it's helpful. It definitely at at a minimum it increases the risk profile of our country and our corporate sector going forward. So I'm at pains to say what all the spending did and what kind of structural change resulted from it. And now it seems we're not even really willing to look at the healthcare system. And I, I mean, maybe that's too harsh. There are a lot of questions being raised in Congress. I think it was McHenry just put forward, Grassley, maybe it was Grassley, just put forward an investigation into the role of private equity in healthcare and what's happening there, which I think is an abomination. And so maybe there will be some kind of change going forward. But I mean, it's hard to see. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to run the kind of counterfactual, like what if some, if you had a health czar and you handed that health czar $7 trillion and said, here, improve the health of, of Americans. I, I think that coronavirus would have been relatively low on the list, actually. I mean, there are a lot of different things that you could do with $7 trillion to improve the health of Americans that may not have involved coronavirus mitigation in any way, right? Certainly, if you had $7 trillion to spend on anything. I mean, healthcare might not even be the number one priority. Maybe you'd spend it on global warming or something else. And so is that really sort of not having a plan? I mean, who within the government should be responsible for contingency planning for things like a a financial crisis or things like a a health crisis? So there supposedly are people, but the responsibility is diffuse and it gets underfunded because we're just not capable of using our imaginations. I've often joked that the key rule that thing you learned in kindergarten, you know, use your imagination. And over and over again, we see that that big bad thing that you say, no, 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 that can never happen. There can't be a guy who's running a Ponzi scheme that's a really well-regarded investor that's going to cost people $30 billion or whatever the end of the Madoff number was. That can't happen. The idea that America's financial system could come crashing to its knees and these big companies could go belly up. No, 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 that can't happen. A pandemic coming to our shores that's going to shut down our society. No, 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 that can't happen. And I think we just exist in this world where it we're not very good at, at thinking about risk. And so these big, bad things just seem inconceivable until they're upon us. So we lurch and we do things like George W. Bush, after reading John Barry's book about influenza, really tried to do a lot about pandemic preparedness, but it got underfunded over the years and the strategic national stockpile got stripped. And most importantly, no one remained flexible enough to say, okay, this is a pandemic, but it's not influenza. What does that mean? What do we do? And so to some extent, there's also a rigidity that can come about with too much planning where people then want it to look like exactly what you plan for instead of having the plans be flexible enough to say, yeah, it kind of looks like this, but in these ways, it doesn't look like that. And so that's another part of the issue with roadmaps. So no, we're just not very good at that. Well, you know, at the beginning of All the Devils Are Here, you talk about, it was a wonderful anecdote about the risk manager at Merrill Lynch who just kept getting demoted further and further and pushed off, you know, into the basement, the palace of the building and so forth. And, and it seems like that's what happens naturally the longer you go without a crisis. And then when the crisis happens, that's when you're like, where'd those guys go? And then you kind of rope them back in. But then the tendency is to push them further and further away over time. We don't really have a place in American society for doomsayers and people who say no and people who aren't optimists and people who say this might fail. Like Jim Chanos just shut down his fund, right? I mean, it's kind of hard to be a short in today's world. It's been very hard to be a short over the last couple of years of super, super low interest rates and the market distortions caused by that. So Yeah. And part of it is even being a short seller. You can see by the way in which short sellers are smeared as being anti-American and not pro-business and somehow evil and bad. We just, we don't have a place for no. (laughs) We don't like no. Well, I mean, you talk about quantitative easing. I mean, quantitative easing, it it seems like a form of carpet bombing, right? So if you're trying to alleviate the suffering and misery of, say, small businesses, then yes, the, the kind of PPP loans and so forth might be a way of doing it, some kind of fiscal policy. But it seems like monetary policy is just a broad brush way of trying to keep the economy afloat, but the main beneficiaries are the wealthy and the financial institutions. Yeah, and that's you know, there was this argument that Ben Bernanke put forth in the Washington Post in 2010 when we first started quantitative easing, or when we first started quantitative easing done outside the immediate crisis. 
And the argument was, we just, we can't. Unemployment is still way too high. And so we need to do something. And since interest rates are near zero, what else can we do? So this idea of quantitative easing was that it would somehow trickle down to the rest of society if you managed to make the stock market go up. And I just don't, I don't under, I, I don't understand how Bernanke believed that because that's not the modern economy. I mean, assets are owned widely. I don't remember the exact numbers, but they're pretty easy to find. The share of assets and held by the wealthy, the bottom strata, uh, economic strata of society doesn't own any assets. They're not going to benefit from rising asset prices. And then in our post-industrial economy, we can ask a lot of questions about why this is. But, you know, the money that went to corporations from quantitative easing and low interest rates, companies didn't take that and go invest and open, build plants and hire more people. They spent it on stock buybacks. And you can argue whether or not that was a wise use of capital. You spend it on a stock buyback so you don't believe you have a more compelling opportunity. So I don't think it's as simple as stock buybacks are bad. But nonetheless, then to look at that economy and say that somehow rising asset prices and cash in the hands of corporations is going to trickle down to benefit everybody. Well, no, it's not. Well, you talk also a lot about state and local politicians. And there aren't a lot of heroes in this book. I mean, you talk about Gavin Newsom, you talk about DeSantis, you talk about de Blasio, you talk about Cuomo. And I think in in the early stages, I mean, DeSantis appears to be a hero of sorts because he seems to be focused on the data. So, sort of later in, in the book, he falls into the same bucket as the other politicians. This doesn't seem to speak well of what leads to success in politics in our country. Is that a feature? Is that a bug? I mean... W- why is it that when I read through the book, I, I'm having trouble finding heroes in the political realm? Oh, dear. I mean, I wish we had more of those. I think it would be a more uplifting book if we had more heroes. But yes, I actually, at the risk of annoying many listeners, I thought highly of Ron DeSantis at the start of the, the pandemic. I thought he thought for himself. He looked at Florida. He looked at what was happening in Florida. He figured out how to protect seniors in nursing homes. And there are lots and so many ways to cut the data. You can basically arrive at any numbers you want. Most people would agree that adjusted for age, Florida's death rate and California's death rate were about comparable. So for all the complaints that DeSantis was killing people right and left with his policies, it's really hard to look back and say that that's the case. But I think the process of running for president did him in. And he just became unrecognizable. And instead of being a person who really did follow the science and really did try to pay attention to scientists and do the right thing, if the contrarian thing, he seems to have gone down the proverbial rabbit hole. And I think there were different issues with our other politicians. I mean, Gavin Newsom, maybe he was doing what he thought was best for the state of California with his policies, but his children were in private school. They weren't in public school. And there was that whole scene where he went to the restaurant. I'm blanking on the name of it. it French Laundry. Yeah, French Laundry episode where he was inside eating without a mask. And lockdowns are for you. They're not for me. And then there's Cuomo, right, who became a hero during the pandemic because he did provide leadership. He was out there in front of people telling people what New York was doing and what the numbers were. And that was what people needed to hear from Trump, somebody who appeared to care and be taking responsibility, but nowhere acknowledged in that were the less appealing parts of Andrew Cuomo's personality, um, including, as it turned out, his decision to send COVID-infected seniors back into nursing homes and then lying about it. So it just, there, there are people who had glimmers of heroism, I guess I'd say, during the pandemic, but no, there there are no easy heroes overall. Well, when we do look back and do a post-mortem. I mean, the goal is to come up with some insights that will perhaps allow us to perform better next time, right? And I'm sure there will be more pandemics down the road, but there'll be other types of crises. I mean, what are the lessons? And there are lessons, I think, for policy. There's lessons for corporate America, but I think there's even lessons for us as individuals in terms of how we respond to the news and how we respond to all of the information that were presented. I mean, what are some of those lessons? Yeah, well, I think some of the biggest ones are that saying I don't know isn't a weakness. It's almost an essential skill in a modern world that is awash in information where if you pretend to a fake certainty, you're going to get caught and it's wrong, you're going to get caught and then people aren't going to trust you. And so the ability to say I don't know in a way that isn't weak is a skill I hope our leaders can start to learn. I don't know, but here's what we think. Here's what we're trying to do. 
I think for all of us, not resorting to ideological divides as quickly as we do and to really trying to understand that where different people are coming from. I mean, I remember this whole ugly thing at the start of the pandemic that you were a really bad person if you cared about the economy. That meant you cared about money over people's lives. And I was like, the economy is people's lives. I mean, what functioning society doesn't have a functioning economy? It doesn't happen. They are intimately bound up together. And so I think being able to listen to each other is a really important lesson. In the end, my co-author said, and I'm, I maybe shouldn't say this because I'm, I haven't looked at it myself and haven't seen it, but said there was a study that showed that the worst death rates in the U.S. were in places without trust, irrespective of lockdowns or any other strategy, it's trust. And so that really worries me for the future that we've lost so much trust in our public officials, our politicians, and our public health people, because that will be a really difficult thing if another pandemic comes. And I think it's just a really difficult thing going forward, putting aside whether there's another pandemic or not. I think we have to start accepting that there are limits to what the Federal Reserve can and should do, and that our financial system is really fragile and fragile in ways that necessitated a much bigger bailout in the pandemic than we would have had to do otherwise. And what do we want to do about that? How do we want to build a financial system that works for the modern world and is stable? Because we talked about that after the global financial crisis, and we sure haven't succeeded. And then lastly, which is just impossible, but I mean, fixing healthcare, because there's this great quote Lyndon Johnson said when he passed Medicare and Medicaid, and I'm going to mangle it, but it's something along the lines of everything we can or hope to do as a country depends upon the health of our people. And it, it does. If we're an unhealthy country where people are getting increasingly unhealthy because they can't afford medical care and they don't trust the system because it bankrupts them, we're done. I mean, you can't, that's not a recipe for a functioning society. And I don't know, I think everybody who contributes to those problems should have a huge amount of shame for what they're doing. But I guess I also think we just need to rip it, as I said earlier, rip it out of the roots and start again. Well, what about journalists? I mean, can journalists look back at their performance during the pandemic and be proud? I remember there were a number of people who were arguing that opening schools for poor children was structurally racist, right? That's, I mean, I think, shouldn't people be called out on stuff like that? I mean, do you think journalists, particularly at mainstream media organs, did an adequately sufficient job of dispelling the myths and illusions that people were falling prey to? No, I really don't. I think it was abysmal. And I still don't really know why. And I heard an argument from a guy at the New York Times that, well, parents of color didn't want to send their children back to school, so it wouldn't have mattered if the schools were open. And I was like, but you can't separate that from the fact that the mainstream media organizations were telling parents that their kids were going to die from COVID. And nowhere out there were the numbers really clear that for healthy kids without pre-existing conditions, the risk of this disease is minuscule. And if that had been communicated clearly and crisply, along with the data from all over the world, that it didn't appear that children were super spreaders and that, in fact, in general, transmission rates were lower in the public schools than they were in the community at, at large, then teachers wouldn't have been as terrified as they were. And so it was a gigantic miscommunication of which the press was apart. And I, I th do think there should be a reckoning on that, but I don't think there will be. I think everybody now wants to just beat their chests about the abysmal state of education and how we failed underprivileged children without ever saying, but wait, why? What happened? What led to that? <laughs> so. Well, Bethany, thank you so much. I think journalism like this is really just rough draft of history. And the historians will start tackling these issues, hopefully fairly soon. And and those historians do write their books, hopefully they'll be taking a look at the early drafts that folks like you have written. Yes. And hopefully there will be more to say. A friend of mine, when I was complaining about various things I don't think are perfect, is perfect, are perfect about the book, a friend of mine had a lovely quote in Hebrew that I can't do in Hebrew, but it, the basic idea is it's your responsibility to start the work, not necessarily to finish it, but it's your responsibility to start it. And I view this as a start, a rough draft of history of which other people can come in and say, we agree with this, we don't agree with this. But an attempt in the moment, in fairly close to the moment, to do that draft. And hopefully it'll still be in print in 20 years, like smartest guys in the room, and all the devils are here. So check out all three. Really appreciate you joining me and hope to talk again soon. Thank you so much for having me on. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast 
produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.